actually backtracking, we, we did look at, at uh, verses 4, but that's kind of where I'm going to start um, this evening. But first, <coughs> excuse me, context, <coughs> and let me remind you, this is the inspired word of God. And so, um, if this is the inspired word, God is putting this out here for us to wrestle with. God is putting this out here for us to consider, or else the book of Ecclesiastes would only be about five verses long at the end. And you don't get to the end until you've plowed through all this that's, that's here at the beginning and then, <clears throat> you know, the middle and toward the end. So, obviously there is a purpose. I'm going back to chapter 3. There is a purpose for God inspiring Solomon to write these things. And, and so, that we're, it, we're, I think because of that, we're, we're called to engage invited to engage, we're invited to consider that which he's saying. He's talking about oppression and, and those who, um, who have no one to comfort them. And then he goes on, <clears throat> basically says, um, the dead are more fortunate than the living. And you have to understand that, that he, this is a poetic expression He's not giving us empirical type of truths. For one thing, when he's writing this, is he alive or dead? He's alive. So, obviously. I know it was a trick question for some of you. Uh, neither do I. But that's all right. But the thing is, he really doesn't understand death. He hasn't experienced it. So he, he's speaking really in, in much more of a poetic sense, and I think that's helpful to remember in trying to glean something out of this. Um, and he even says in verse 3, better is both he, I'm reading out of the ESV tonight, better, but better than both uh, is he who is not yet and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. In other words, someone who's never been born. So, is that a truth, or is he, again, is he speaking poetically? I think he's speaking poetically. I think, I think these are the expressions of his heart. Uh, these are the, the conclusions that he is entertaining when he sees the oppression and the in injustice that goes on in the world. Why? Because obviously he's, he's running out of answers here, I think. But then in here you get, you get these uh, comparisons. And I, I didn't really catch this uh, when I taught it <clears throat> a month ago, but I knew that we were going to have a month off. No, I didn't. But anyway, uh, I didn't really catch this much when we looked at this a while ago, so that's why I wanted to back up again and look at verses 4, 5, and 6 of chapter 4. And hopefully we're going to get further than that, but I, but, but I want to I at least kind of look at these in, in their chunks because 
I'll, I'll, <clears throat> I'll give you um, my thought on this ahead of time. Essentially, 4, 5, and 6 is talking about contentment. Uh, 7 through 12 is talking about working in partnership with other people. And then 13 through 16 is talking about leaders uh, who lead with a teachable spirit. And 13 through 16 is interesting. It's, 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 I think it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult to try to make some sense out of it. But <clears throat> maybe we'll get there tonight and I can explain at least my take on it. But in 4, 5, and 6, um, it says, the work and the skill of a man is envied, is what it's talking about in 4. It says, again, I saw that for all the toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor, and also uh, vanity and grasping for the wind. So somebody works. And when you work, what happens on Friday? All right, Gary's with me. Okay, you get paid. And then you have money. And then you do what? You spend it on, well, fill in the blank, all right? Um, but particularly if you've got a good job, or let's say you got promoted, all of a sudden your standard of living starts to increase. And um, your neighbor looks, and they see that 2024 Mustang, five liter, sitting in the driveway. Uh, none of our neighbors. I want one of our neighbors to have one of those. Um, this neighbor. <laughs> but they, it, they see the increase, and, and people can become very envious. Envy is interesting because it's really the cousin of jealousy. They're not necessarily the same thing, but they're like cousins, and, and they kind of go together. And, and so you have here in verse 4, um, a person who works and a person who is skilled at their job. And hopefully we all did strive or some of us who are working, do strive to be skilled at, at whatever it is that we're doing, to do a good job, to work as unto the Lord, right? For the three, four, well, there's four or five of us in here that actually still work at least sometimes. Um, but let's put it into your world because when you even retire, do you still work? I think Don is working harder now that he's retired than he ever did. And he, he worked hard working for Fred Myers. I used to see him walk around the store like the guy looks just worn out. But um, I think when you do work, when you're retired, again, you, you still want to do it with skill. Um, you still want to be able to work as unto the Lord. And, uh, of course, the thing is, you know, I think of our wood cutting and somebody showing up with a brand new saw and every, that was everybody's envy, right? <laughs> and it was, it was a great saw. Um, but, uh, y y you know, 
these type of things, it's, it's really strange, particularly... Now, I'm not attributing this to anybody here. I'm really not, Cousin Tim. Okay, Tim's laughing. But when our skills and we get compensated, when our skills increase and we get compensated for our skills, and then we start to spend the money on maybe things so that we can kind of let everybody know that our skills are good and, doggone it, we're making a good living and, you know, all of that, you know. And then we create envy and jealousy and all kinds of things. So it's really kind of a two-edged sword. So that's part of why I believe he is saying here that this is vanity. Um, now, he's already told us, right, how good it is to work. Did we not read that? And he's going to say it again, is he not? But, but sometimes it's, it's the idea of what's the motive behind what you do. So here's the contrast here. Okay. Again, I saw that for all the toil, verse 4, and every skill, skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor. Okay. But then he flips this 180 degrees and says, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. And then he goes on to say, better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Now, seven and eight are kind of a bridge. Uh, and I'll, I'll get into that in just, just a moment. But we go from a person who works and is skillful at it to someone who is, um, for lack of a better term, I put in my notes, the lazy person. The person who doesn't want to work. And uh, it, we touched on this before where the Proverbs talks about the, 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 the fool who is a slothful person, the little folding of the hands, a little resting of the eyes, you know, so whenever I lay down and take a nap, I make sure I don't fold my hands. Anyway, I think it's in Proverbs 26 that talks about this. Um, but it says the fool folds his hands because he's going to take a nap, and he consumes his own flesh. What, is, what does that mean? Now, is that literal? Should we, should we, should we, interpret that literal, that a fool folds his hands and starts eating his own flesh or consuming his own flesh? Muscle loss, why? Because he's lazy, so he's not eating well, and he's atrophying because he's sleeping, right? So, um, yeah, he's, he's painting a picture for us here. So you have the one who's skillful who's being envied, but then he's, he's comparing that to the one who is uh, a fool. So at, at one po some point, you almost want to ask, what's worse? Well, what is worse? Is there a worse? I think the one who doesn't work is worse. What did Paul say about that? Man is worthy of his labor, but he also said if he doesn't, a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. So, um, <clears throat> I think work is holy. I think work is sacred. No matter what it is that you're doing. 
Because again, it's the attitude in which you do it, or the, the heart in which you do it, where you do is as unto the Lord. And so you have this contrast where you have, um, again, he, he's still playing with this idea. It says, better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. What is he talking about? He's been talking about working and being skillful and people being envy of the skillful worker. He's comparing that to the fool who just folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Not only his physical body, but he consumes everything about him because he's not adding to it. So the bills come, keep piling up and he's unable, unwilling to work. Um, but then he says, better is a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. So, better to have one hand full of whatever rather than both hands full. And he's talking about, he's really talking about, I think, material possessions. And, and to... Um, Work and rest. Yeah, I think he is. I think he, he, he gave the contrast for us to see the two, the two extremes. This is an incredible teaching moment that he's put down here in paper. And, and, and so he, he's saying it, it's better to have quietness with one hand than have two full hands. Uh, with toil and grasping for the wind. Now, w and we have a few people in our church that are self-employed. And the interesting thing about people who are self-employed is it can be difficult to clock out in the afternoon. For some of you, when you worked and you weren't self-employed, it was still difficult to, uh, to clock out, take your work home with you, right? And I've known people that, and they've described their, their, their evening at that times, not, not every single day, but at times they are so worked up about what tomorrow's going to bring that it's like they almost shouldn't have clocked out almost. You know, and of course, but, you know, the more you work, the more tired you get and the, the least productive you are. Um, and, and, and so he, he's saying it's better to just have one handful to be able to accomplish that which you need with quietness. So there's the contrast. Because the quietness, really, he's relating that to what he talks about on, in verse 5. Now, what he says in verse 5, he, this guy's a fool because this is all he does, right? All he does is fold his hands. All he does is consume his own flesh. But to have that quietness, rather than to have both hands full and be able to gain and to gain and to attain and to have more and to have more and to have more and to have more, to, have more, to where basically you're just, you know, you just become this working machine. And your whole life is about work. And there's no balance. 
and there's no rest. And I think when we neglect rest, this is just my opinion, I think when we neglect rest in our lives, we tend to start to short-circuit our own joy. Most workaholics that I know are not real happy people. So, um, I think I think that's what he's he's bringing out here. Okay, all right, thanks, Cindy. Um, this is where the I think in the New American Standard, I think it, if I'm not mistaken, it worded it just the first part of chapter verse seven. Okay, I looked again at futility under the sun. Um, so he's he's. Why do you think he's trying to identify, okay, I think he's trying to identify vanity. I think he's trying to identify futility. Why? Why do you think he's doing that? Let's say I'm right, okay? I know it'll, it'll pain some of you to be able to say that, but let's say I'm right. Then why is he, why is he attempting to identify vanity and futility? Because it's futile and it's vain. You've been hanging around this guy. Yeah, in other words, there's some defensive ideas of, of because he's looking at his life and not everything has worked out well. Yeah, I didn't consider that. But yeah, he, he's, he's trying to identify, he's trying to identify where not to go. He's trying to identify... He's giving you the opposite of what? It's all over the Proverbs. Starts with a W. He's giving you the opposite of wisdom. Because we learn often in contrast. And so that's what he's doing here. Is he's returning to vanity so that we might be able to identify these things in our own life so that we do what? We avoid them, right? That's where he's going here. So, <clears throat> but I, I would dare say that here in the scripture, because this is considered wisdom literature. So I would dare say that we have to be taught what isn't good so that we learn to cleave to that which is good so that we can identify it. One of the things that I have been curious about Particularly in the early Proverbs, and what we're at, uh, we're at Proverbs twelve tonight, right? Or today, t tonight? I, I read it at night. The, the first few Proverbs really had a lot to say about wisdom, but it it spoke about it very generally. Did you notice that? If, any, if anybody's read that. It, it, it doesn't necessarily say how to get wisdom a whole lot. It says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The beginning. But to me, I, I particularly like, like the first seven Proverbs, I'm reading it, I'm like, 
it's, it's more descriptive than it is instructive. But it is still instructive. So I'm hearing, I'm reading all this stuff about wisdom. I'm like, okay, well, how do we obtain it? Um, I think as you go through the Proverbs, that question starts getting answered. Even in reading last night, it starts getting answered um, in Proverbs 11. And James, of course, which is known as the Proverbs of the New Testament, addresses these things as well. But, so he's returning and saw the vanity under the sun because he's wanting us to see what doesn't work. Because I really think your mileage may vary. But I really think people place an unbiblical, I'm still working through this, probably shouldn't tell you this, it's never good to think out loud, okay, let's just move on, no, I'm kidding, Uh, but I think people place an unbiblical expectation on the Holy Spirit, now, has the Holy Spirit been given to teach us all things? Has he been given to teach us all? John, we'll get there eventually, it'll be a while, the comforter. The Holy Spirit is given to teach us all things. But I know too many Christians believe that that happens through a process called osmosis. Where you lay down in your bed and you wake up the next morning and you're a new person. Can that happen? Yes, it can happen. Does that happen? Probably with each of us, perhaps to a degree. But is that the sole meaning or sole means of our spiritual instruction? Or else why are we studying the Bible? Right? So it's it 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 doesn't quite work that way, cousin Tim. But anyway, but thanks for anyway. Um, so it's always the Spirit of God working in concert with the Word of God. And if you're being taught something that you believe is from the Holy Spirit that is contrary to the historic teaching of the church as grounded in the Holy Scriptures, you're wrong. That's just my opinion. You know, if all of a sudden you've got this incredibly new revelation that no one has ever known before, and it's contrary to what the church has taught, I don't think you've got a new revelation. Again, and somebody... By the way, it was really... I really enjoyed listening to you guys teach, uh, those who taught. I finally got a chance to listen to it, so that was wonderful. And I'm thinking, we have to do this again sometime. And I'll just come and lead worship and go sit in the back. Um, and let you all do it. Somebody's calling me from El Paso, Texas. What's that? Uh, okay, well, well, we'll have to talk about that later. Okay. 
That reminds me of a story that I'm not going to bring up here. Uh, all right. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, again, he's identifying these things because... How do I say this nicely? At times, not always, not everyone, let me get myself off the hook, not any of you, okay? But at times, I think Christians are incredibly unwise. And Jesus addressed that, where he talked about the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of the kingdom which I find really a problem. But verse 8, there is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet is no end to all his labors, nor is his eyes satisfied with riches. But he never asked, okay, but he never asked. What does that mean? What is that implying? That's what I, We know he never asked. We know what that means. But what is he implying here? Maybe he should ask. I'll throw that out for you. But he never asked, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Yeah. One of the things that I thought about, you know, I'm going to put kind of, I'm going to share a little story that you shared with me. It's nothing bad, okay? But you guys were in Hawaii for six years, right? One of the things that I thought was interesting about your time there is you said you did a lot of traveling because you could, and you, and I thought, what a what a what an opportunity what a way to take advantage of the opportunity that you had you know and you worked hard and you went out and played hard and you took the family with you you know and i thought yeah that really that makes a lot of sense to me um but you talked about unhappy work but i but i think again if you got no one to share it to share it with you're never i have never seen a u-haul behind a hearse because they don't, they don't do that. Um, what, for your U-Haul? Cindy's going to want that stuff. Well, some of it. Well, she can have a garage sale. Okay, how's that? Um, but... You know, here's so you see we have someone who's driven, 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 driven by work and by accomplishing. Is that a good thing to be to, to work? Yeah, I think we've already substantiated that. I think other passages in other books of the Bible even talk about that. We've already talked about that tonight. But <clears throat> a friend of mine, he he pastors down in Oroville, California. And we were talking about something totally unrelated to this passage. We were talking about something, and he said, you know what, you have to ask yourself to what end? You know what I mean? In other words, you have to ask yourself, 
what is the end game of why I'm doing what I'm doing? You have to ask, to what end? Why, why are we doing this? You know, why, why are we going about all of this? What, 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 are we, what are we looking to see? You know, and, and the thing I was talking, talking with my own director and, and about wanting to see fruit being produced in my life in different areas. And, and to what end? You know, yeah, I want to see fruit produced. Um, and, you know, here, here this person is working and notice depriving themselves of good. Depriving themselves of good. What is good? Pleasure. What is pleasure? Sorry. Satisfaction, a hot fudge Sunday. Anything wrong with a hot fudge Sunday? What's that? Very much so. Remember, contentment. Remember I said seven and eight are kind of a bridge between four, five, six, and nine and ten. And so it, it essentially he's he he's he's calling us in this passage to prioritize the things in our life. That is really easy for me to say. That's probably fairly easy for you to hear. Maybe some of you more than others. It can be difficult to live. Because there's that horrible theologian. I don't remember his name. Oh, I do remember his name who used to sing, I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. Freddie Mercury, right? He wasn't a theologian. But anyway. Um, but here again, he's using this in the context of someone who has no heirs. Um, he's, he's all by himself, without a companion, no son, no brother, no nobody. Um, notice, yet there is no end to all his labors. And he's not satisfied. And he's not satisfied. I was talking with a guy um, yesterday. And he's experiencing the shift where he, and he's, he's, somewhere around my age and he's experiencing the shift where he's finally realizing that his life is not about his the roles that he plays his identity is not about the roles that he plays he's finally saying i'm trying to settle into my identity of being someone whom god loves and he's probably early 60s and he's and he says i've been wrestling with this for probably six seven years but i'm finally starting to believe it and um he was pastored a couple different churches. They never really worked out. Um, I won't go into his story much, but but nonetheless, he's learning to be satisfied, which is a real it's a monumental task for him. Apparently, the way he described it, it really sounded that way. He's learning to be satisfied. By just simply being someone whom God loves. 
and, and really to make that enough and to make that fulfilling. Um, but as far as in verse 8, <coughs> Solomon again says, this also is vanity and a grave misfortune. So then he goes on, because he's talking about someone who is alone, no companion, no son, no brother, and he goes on and he says, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward. So, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion and woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. So he, he's talking about this idea of partnerships in different aspects. Now, I've only been in, I've only had one business partner. Uh, it was very short-lived. And um, the guy, he spaced out and moved to Hawaii. And he told me he was moving to Hawaii because the Canes were moving there. But anyway, um, anyway, he, he, he moved to Honolulu for a while. Um, but uh, didn't stay there long either. But, you know, we were in business and we thought we were going to do well and we're committed and all of a sudden he just bails. And the funny thing about this individual is what? Um, over 40 years later, he's wanting me to invest in his business. <laughs> A different business. And so, so I called Bill. <laughs> Bill's sitting there shaking his head. That's why. <laughs> so I'm like, this isn't going to happen. And by the way, that business went belly up. Um, so I still have a friend and I st we still have our money. So partnerships are really, uh, th they can be a real tricky thing. Um, they're almost like a marriage. And um, I'm going to go out on a limb. They're almost like a marriage and the Bible doesn't condone polygamy in my opinion. So, you know, I mean, it's like you really can't have that relationship with your business partner that you do with your spouse as far as the intimacy. And, and I'm talking friendship. I'm not talking uh, marital intimacy. But, but nonetheless, um, as I remember, I, one of the supervisors that I used to work for when we were, I was painting in Sacramento, he, he had a firm belief, and he would say it all the time, two can do the work of three, and three does the work of one and a half um, because it, you become a third wheel, which it made a lot of sense, actually. Um, but they can get a lot done. The thing is, 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 is while they have good reward for their labor, what do they usually have to do? Split it 50-50 or whatever the arrangement is. But really, two can do a whole lot more than one person. They can do more than, usually more than two people by themselves can do. Thanks, Larry. You helped me out on that one. <laughs> anyway. Um, but if one falls, one can lift the other up. One can lift up its companion. You know, it's, um, and that makes a lot of sense. I used to, 
when I was young, I didn't mind going out on big jobs by myself with, you know, tall ladders and getting up on the very top of the ladder and doing what I had to do. And, you know, as I was getting older, um, I got to where I didn't like going out by myself, you know, and sometimes it was just, I was just thankful to have another person there. Um, if there was a problem. And so, uh, so that, I think that's, that's very true. If one can fall, uh, the other can lift him up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, you know, because this was written before Life Alert. <laughs> I couldn't help it. Anyway, <laughs> I just thought of it. But, yeah, I've fallen and I can't get up. But, but, but it's true. Woe to one who falls uh, and he has no one to help him up. Now, I think we can look at this almost as, as a metaphor. Um, uh, more uh, as much of a metaphor as it is the actual physical idea of someone falling. Because if someone falls, if he's by themselves, um, woe to him. Uh, this really undergirds the idea, and I'm taking this slightly out of context, but I don't think I'm taking it out of context as much as I'm expanding the context of Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, where it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now that's talking primarily about the relationship between a man and a wife. I understand that. But the first part of that verse, that it is not good for a man to be alone, um, I think refers to other things as well. You know, uh, neighbors, uh, God forbid. Um, let me try that one again. I, uh, I have some interesting neighbors, but uh, I, won't, I won't segue into that story. Um, sometimes I wish I lived out at the estates with all of you guys, you know, the little tribe. No. I, gosh, I remember being alone in the church parking lot in Tahoe talking to a guy that he was incredibly depressed, but he was almost becoming sociopathic. Um, and uh, he's talking about suicide, and he's starting to intimate that maybe I'll just take you with me. You know, and I'm just like, and I've been, I've been in the ministry like four months. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. Um, and... I remember one time that the pastor there wanted to go visit this woman and he didn't want to visit her alone. Uh, not only because she was a woman, but it was in a, it was in a Cranksterville trailer park um, and the trailer had no electricity and it had no running water. And most of the walls were halfway dismantled. Okay, you, you can't, you, you know, it's, the whole thing was like one big tweaker project. Okay, um, you know, the, the woman bathed in the river, the Truckee River. Um, and, oh, it was just, it was just a crazy place. And, you know, he's like, I, you know, I want you to go with me. And it made, made a lot of sense just for so many reasons. For so many reasons that that he didn't go along, you know. There are certain times that 
that I won't go into a situation alone um, just because it's not a good idea, you know. And so, um, and he goes on to say this, and it says, and if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Which makes a lot of sense, the body heat, right? And, and um, because the nights get cold in that region, believe it or not, the, lights can't, the nights can get cold in that region of the world. Um, you know, Jerusalem's up higher. It's, it's high in elevation. It, I, think, I think it's higher than here as far as above sea level. I, I, I want to say it's, well, I haven't looked it up in a while, and I can't remember, so I'm not going to even throw a number out. But, um, and it says, though, though one may be overpowered by another, so you've got one, two can withstand him. Verse 12, and a three-cord, three-fold cord is not quickly broken. So the three-fold cord that is not quickly broken is often interpreted, although there isn't, there really isn't a basis for it. So it's, it's, but again, with wisdom literature, I think you have a lot of liberty. The threefold, the threefold cord um, is can be a reference to a man and a woman who get married, and the Lord being in the midst of them in that. And it and it it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Uh, the only thing that's troubling about that idea is that, and I haven't looked at these statistics in a while, but at one time in the United States, the divorce rate was 50%. And in the church in America, the divorce rate was 51%, which I found tragic. Uh, and, and I've heard so many sermons on the three-fold cord. And yes, I think it's important to have your relationship with the Lord interwoven with your spouse's relationship with the Lord, and that becomes a part of your relationship together, however that's expressed. If anything else, it's in knowing that Christ is interwoven in you. That's, that's why I think it's important that we, we consider uh, not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Now that passage does not primarily talk about marriage, but it could be in, in the New Testament, but it could be interpreted that way. And some will <clears throat> interpret that um, very strictly, which would refer to partnership, business partnerships or, or whatnot. What I find interesting here in Ecclesiastes is there's no qualifiers here other than the threefold cord, which could be a qualifier. If he is talking about partnerships and relationships, and he is in verse 9, 10, 11, and in 12, I think he's almost summing up the idea of the threefold cord is is uh, quickly broken. So the more I think about it, the more I think that's probably a, a pretty.
pretty good application of the interweaving of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of our relationships. And in my opinion, I think that's also wise. I, because of what the New Testament says about not being unequally yoked, I really doubt that I would ever want to be in a business arrangement um, with a non-Christian. Actually, I don't know that I'd want to be in a business arrangement with anybody, to be honest with you. I have one business partner. Um, and, uh, and, and she's constantly telling me what to do and how to do it. And I'm constantly saying, well, why don't you retire? <laughs> anyway. Uh, but, um, well, not constantly, right? Enough. Anyway. Um, We've got a few minutes. Let's just finish out the chapter. This is really strange. Okay, better a poor and a wise youth than an old and a foolish king who will not be admonished no more. Okay, that's how he starts this little section. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. Who does that sort of remind you of? Sort of. I think there's a possibility that this could... He could have been thinking about Joseph, although he was not born in his kingdom, was he? Okay, I mean, it's not a total hand-in-glove fit. But I think Joseph is a possibility. Um, It says, I saw all the living who walk under the sun, and they were with the second youth who stands in his place. Now, we have the old king, we have the young guy who takes over the kingdom, and now we have a second youth. Who, um, who now all the people are standing with him, and it says there was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterwards will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity in the grasping of the wind. So he could have been thinking about Joseph when he wrote this. There's some similarities here. It's also a possibility that he may have been thinking a bit about his father, David. So, is it Joseph? Is it David? Is it someone else? Or if he's just taking bits and pieces of their stories, Joseph and David's, and combining them as a literary device. Or is he completely speaking hypothetically just to illustrate a point? We don't know. So is A, B, C, or D, or E, none of the above. I would go, well, you go E, all the above, or F, none of the above. Or G, ask Larry. (laughs) We could, right? I mean, that would work. Um. This is the hardest story to follow. Bless you. So you have this young man who rises from poverty 
obscurity, comes out of prison, and he takes over the kingdom. Because it's better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. Why is the king foolish? What do you see there? Because he's no longer receiving instruction. Right, that's what the NASB, that, that was what I was looking for. Just read that real fast for us, nice and loud, please. Okay. You have several contrasts here. I'm going to sum this up briefly. You have several contrasts. Two kings, maybe three kings. Youth versus age, which I find fascinating because there's also that saying that says youth is wasted on the young, which I can very comfortably say here, right? We're all good with that, right? And to a degree it is. You have youth versus age, poverty versus wealth, wisdom versus folly, because the young guy is wise. Why is he wise? You can only speculate. He, grew, he was willing to learn. He grew up poor. He went into prison for good knows, you know. Again, he could be thinking of David here when he was on the run. Although David was never put in prison, Joseph was. David was, David was hanging out with the Philistines pretending to be a madman. He was in Gath. If only they sent him away. I'll get the crazy guy out of here. The big contrast here is you have an old king who will no longer take advice, and you have a young king who was wise who is willing to listen to advice. So the Proverbs does talk about the idea of the, the wisdom of the gray-headed. But there's also a, a caution that I think as we get older, um, I think as we get older, we become very set in our ways. Not us. What are you shaking your head yes for? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. David was always dependent upon God. Exactly. Now he had a lapse or two, and Saul, when it was told to him by Samuel that God was going to take the kingdom and give it to one who was a man after his own heart. Uh, he attempted to hold on to the kingdom, which was, and he eventually at the end of his life says what? I have what? I play the fool. Actually, it wasn't quite toward the end of his life, but he acknowledged his own foolishness. But 
we always want to be teachable. We always want to be teachable as Christians. Now, I struggle with that, at, at, and I do a lot of reading. Um, and if you want to know about the younger generation, ask somebody young. Seriously. Because they know about the younger generation. If you want to know about something that's outside of your circle, ask somebody outside of your circle. I went to Best Buy one time. This was kind of fun. Um, I went to talk to one of the... Okay, a few minutes. A few minutes. Okay, I'm over. Um, I went and talked to one of the geeks. You know, the, the, uh, the computer... The geek squad, that's what they're called. So, there's a young guy, he's in his 20s. And I said, why is it there's so many young people that want to work, it seems? He goes, well, I, and he was very hesitant. I don't want to get into it. I said, look, I'm not going to argue with you. So you and I run in very different circles. I just want to hear your opinion. And that's all I want. And he was like, well, uh, well, I guess I could say. And then he told me. And I thought, wow. I said, well, thanks for that. And I just left it. Because I wanted to hear about life in Central Oregon from the perspective of probably a pagan, 20-something, and hear what he had to say about it instead of me trying to reframe it. So... I think it's very important that we remain teachable. Very important. I've changed my theology. I know I'm trying, not trying not to step on any, some of your toes, guys, but I've changed some of my theology because I don't feel that the Bible accurately teaches some of the things that I was taught as a kid. And your mileage does vary on that one, doesn't it?